Hello, everyone. We made it. It's the final episode of this season of More Perfect. Thank you for listening to our show. Before we get started, I want to take a minute to remind you that More Perfect is a public media podcast, which is an amazing thing. It means we rely on support from listeners to make our show possible. It takes a lot of time and resources to make each episode of this show. We've got multiple producers, editors, fact-checkers, legal advisors, sound designers. This is what you make possible when you donate to support our show. Listeners who donated before you funded this past season, and your donation is going to help fund our upcoming season. So please, right now, <laughs> go to moreperfectpodcast.org slash donate, or text PERFECT to 70101. It's only going to take you a few minutes, we promise. And now, on to the show. I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. And this is pop art icon Andy Warhol. In other words, you have no vision of the past, the artistic trend, no vision of the future trend. You're just doing whatever you feel like. Well, yeah. We'll hear argument first this morning in case number 21869, Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith. The ghost of Andy Warhol visited the Supreme Court this term. While most of the other cases were filled with heated conversations in legalese, here... You make it sound simple, but maybe it's not so simple, at least in some The justices found themselves debating the meaning of form. What is the meaning or the message of, of a work of art? And color. But I'm sure there's an art critic who will tell you there's a great difference between... Blue and yellow. And I think what a court would because have to do at the center of this case are two pieces of art. Well, I don't know. I never call my stuff art. See, it's just work. Okay, at the center of the case are two pieces of work. One looks like a photograph and one looks like a painting. Yeah. But it looks like someone painted that from the photograph. The photograph is a black and white portrait of a face that's familiar to a lot of people. The musician and cultural icon, Prince. And I'm a fan, so I recognize the image right away. Don't have to it was taken by celebrity photographer Lynn Goldsmith in 1981. The other is the same image of Prince's face, but the whole thing is colored in orange. It's got an unmistakable Warhol look. Going into the case, a question at the center seemed to be, was Warhol's portrait transformative? Transformative? Define that. Did it transform Goldsmith's original photo into something so new and different that it was okay for the Warhol Foundation not to have paid her or gotten her permission to use the photo first? The image on the left is just a simple photograph. A nice photograph. The image on the right turns it into art. I don't know. No. 
you can clearly still see the, the, the original image and it's pretty clear. I don't know. They're almost not from the same planet. That last voice is art critic Jerry Saltz from New York Magazine. I would argue the photograph was just a drawing, just a sketch, just an inspiration. I believe that these works of art that Warhol created totally 100% transform the original product. To Jerry, there's no question. The Warhol is transformative. I actually happen to disagree with you, I think, but like... I'm, in, in my own opinion, I'm 100% right. You, in my opinion, are very, very conservative. (laughs) (laughs) And I am radical. I quickly learned this case is kind of fun to talk about because it shakes up traditional liberal and conservative divides. If you're starting to talk to people about it, it's really hard to predict who they're going to side with. Let's just say I'm the conservative one to make this easy, and you're ultra-radical. It is fun to be a radical, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, you're the radical, I'm the conservative, okay? (laughs) Okay, cool. I hate the idea that Justice Alito and those other dweebs are discussing this, because to me it's not a legal issue, it's a taste issue. The legal question was whether the Andy Warhol Foundation violated the photographer's copyright. And in the oral argument, you can hear the justices trying not to sound like art critics. How is a a court to determine the message or meaning of works of art, like a photograph or a painting? How does the court go about doing this? So this week on More Perfect... We're going to find out how they go about doing this, interpreting art. We have the artist Andy Warhol, who claims he's not making art. The photographer, who claims Andy Warhol's a copycat. And the Supreme Court justices, who insist they are not art critics. And watching the judges tiptoe into the squishy world of art, where right is left and left is right, allows us, honestly... A break from all the depressing partisan politics. And possibly a more clear-eyed look at how the U.S. Supreme Court actually makes decisions. More Perfect is supported by NetSuite. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash moreperfect. netsuite.com slash moreperfect. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. The docket this past term was filled with explosive and fraught issues. Affirmative action, voting rights, anti-discrimination laws. And then there was a case about Andy Warhol. On paper, it looked like the fun case this term. Warhol's transformative meaning puts points on the board under factor one of the four-factor balancing test. In practice, maybe less fun. If you look at Judge Laval's article at page 1111... Producer Alyssa Eads waded into the weeds... Test one, two, three, test one, two, three. ...to rescue the fun. One, two, three, four. This seems to be recording. You can trace the origin story of the Andy Warhol case back to this man. Uh, My name is Pierre Laval. I'm a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. When Judge Laval was in law school at a certain school in Boston... At the Harvard Law School... Everybody told me that copyright is the most fun course in the school. I should definitely take it in my third year. And I thought to myself, that would be immature of me. I should choose a course that will be useful to me in the future. And then it turned out that not too far into the future, I became a federal judge uh, with responsibility to decide copyright law, and I didn't know anything about copyright law. Judge LaValle should have taken the fun class. So wait, why is copyright uh, fun for, for law students? Right. So copyright is this area of the law where there's a lot of creativity, kind of, because the Constitution doesn't say a whole lot about it. I just want to, like, for a second, just bear with me. I want to pull out metaphorically my pocket Constitution, but really just going to look it up. Article 1, copyright. Uh, so here it is. Congress can promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Sounds like a blast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's a lot of words. Basically, the Constitution wants to advance arts and sciences, right? For the whole of society. And the way that it gets there is by saying, we're going to protect creators from copycats. But that protection is also limited. And over the next 200 years, judges decide it's okay to copy sometimes. There are times when stuff might be fair to use. Fair use is entirely created by judges. I mean, eventually it was adopted into the law. 
But in the 80s, when Laval is getting his first copyright cases, judges had been largely improvising their answer to what is fair to use on an opinion-by-opinion basis. None of those judicial opinions ever undertook to tell you how do you discern Mm -hmm. whether a use is fair use or not. Yeah, how are you supposed to tell? Seems like... Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So judges were essentially deciding from the gut, and that's... That's not a good thing for the law. Laval says usually judges have a way of avoiding making decisions from the gut. When a a case comes before a judge, the judge must decide for one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that in a manner that tells the world this is being done according to law rather than just according to how I feel at this particular moment— the judge has got to explain the decision in terms of generally applicable standards. Generally applicable standards. In other words, the judges want to be able to say, we're not making this stuff up. We got rules. This is an inescapable part of the judge's job. He says standards are the building blocks of judging. I mean, it's like an engineer thinking about what materials are going to be adequate to hold up a bridge when trains and cars and trucks and so on are crossing the bridge. A legal standard sturdy enough to apply to all different kinds of situations. Movies, books, music, podcasts that use stuff from other places. Laval thinks that like engineers, judges can stress test a standard to make it objective. If you don't do that, if you just say, say, well, this seems right to me, you have not fulfilled your function, and, and uh, there's an increased likelihood that the bridge will collapse under bad conditions. And in cases involving fair use, Laval says there was no general standard. So he decided to build the bridge himself. I undertook to at least make steps in the direction of outlining what standards should be for determining whether something is or isn't a fair use. He came up with an idea for a new standard. Transformative use. When might it be okay to copy someone else's work? When the copy transforms the original. In 1990, Pierre Laval writes this hugely influential law review article essentially saying... To be transformative, a piece of art... ...should seek to communicate something very different from what the original author was seeking to communicate. And that the work should add new information, new aesthetics, new insights and understandings. Which honestly, I don't know, is still kind of vague. So the thing that's trying to be described is complex, and it's, uh, I don't claim that the word transformative is all you need to know mm. to answer all the questions. It's a, it's a stab in the direction of explaining what it is about a certain type of copying or using of another's work that uh, will help you get in the door of fair use, of permitted copying, as opposed to prohibited, unauthorized copying. This transformative test takes the copyright world by storm. This little idea in a law review article makes it big and finds its way 
to the Supreme Court through a case about music. Okay, so picture this. It's the 1980s. The parties are wild. The girls was doing what they call twerking now. They was just calling the shake dancing back then. And there's this little hip-hop group making a big name for itself, and that group is Two Live Crew. My name is David Hobbs, also known as DJ Mr. Mix. If there's no me, there's no Two Live Crew. That's my intro. Mr. Mix grew up just outside L.A. He was always musical. Um, yeah, when I was a kid, there was a guy that played the saxophone called Junior Walker. He was really dynamic, and I would see him on TV. He learned to play the saxophone when he was a kid, sort of mimicking records by ear. I would take records from my pop's collection and bring them back to my room and try to figure out the notes or play along with, you know, the melodies that I heard on the records. He gets to take some music classes in school, but instead of turning it into a career right away, he joins the Air Force. And it's in the Air Force that he gets introduced to hip-hop. He's stationed in England. And... The breakdancing group Rocksteady Crew came to uh, England to do a... um, exhibition. And I went to one of them. And um, they had a DJ with them. And this is the first time Mr. Mix sees somebody DJ. And he's just like hooked. When I actually seen him do it, and I seen one hand was on the record going back and forth in a, you know, in a scratcher mode in the same way like you would scratch your arm. Yeah. Okay, so now now I get to understand why they call it scratching. So he leaves England. The Air Force stations him back uh, in California. I went and got me two makeshift turntables and a makeshift mixer and started practicing in the barracks, honing my skills. Just like when he was a kid with the saxophone, listening to his dad's records, imitating the stuff that he was hearing, you know, He's now taking something and making it into his own thing. I'll put it to you this way. The way that hip-hop originated, you took a record that people already recognize, and you do it your own way. Or you take elements from it to make it a little more unique based on what it is that you did. Fast forward, Mr. Mix forms Two Live Crew with some friends, and they're blowing up in Miami. And their music and their shows are super raunchy. They had this album called As Nasty As They Want to Be, which was banned by a federal judge for being obscene. But their thing was, like, being outrageous. Like, How far could you push it? So in this spirit of humor, they're taking things they think will be recognizable and making fun of them. And um, in 1989, they land on the Roy Orbison song as something that would be fun to rip and mix. Right. Woman, you's out with my 
know, childish humor. That's what we were doing. But it was childish humor in a way where it could be a lot of money was made. But I guess their beef was is that we didn't get permission from them to do it. Pretty woman. And uh, to no one's surprise, they get sued. And they end up in the Supreme Court. We'll hear argument first this morning at number 92, 12, And the question is, can Two Live Crew's version of Pretty Woman be considered fair use as a parody? That is the purpose of parody, to borrow from the original and then to imitate and ridicule the original, which is what happened in this case. The thought process is taking the groove of the record and saying some funny stuff based off of what the original actually is. So we were making a parody, but we didn't really think about it in that way, like that's what we were really doing. Uh, We now reverse and remand. Uh, Parody, like other comment and criticism, may claim to be fair use. And the Court of Appeals... So Justice David Souter writes the opinion, and all nine justices sign on to it. He says, this parody is a clear example of fair use. And he declares a new standard. To make these kinds of decisions, judges are supposed to gauge whether and to what extent a new work is transformative. And he puts a citation after that. Laval. Well, I was pretty thrilled. Why? Well, because they, because they took my article and used it kind of as a blueprint. This was a victory for a Two Live Crew and for Pierre Laval, who became a giant in the fun area of the law much to his surprise. And weirdly, it seems to me like Justice Souter is taking Laval and sort of remixing him in a way. Totally, totally. That is part of what judges do. They're adding on to each other's work. They're seeing what's come before. They're taking things other people have said and putting it in new context, writing new stuff. And now similar cases that come after it are decided using Laval's transformative use standard. It becomes the beating heart of fair use law. Hmm. Then Warhol comes along. Well, then what's the difference between uh, a photograph and a painting? That's a big difference. There is no difference. Yeah, I like photographs better. Arguably the most famous American artist of the last hundred years, whose signature style is based on appropriating and transforming other people's images. And the question now is, almost 30 years after the Supreme Court handed a victory to a Pretty Woman parody, what will this particular court make of Warhol's work? That's after the break. From WMYC Studios, this is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. Judges have always had a hard time figuring out how to rule on cases in the squishy world of art. That area of the law is dominated by vague questions like, is it fair? So when one judge, Pierre Laval, 
added the arguably more specific question, is it transformative? Judges were into it. The Supreme Court used it to decide a case about a hip-hop parody, and they made Laval's transformative standard go platinum. Which brings us to the Andy Warhol case. Here's producer Alyssa Eads. Yeah, so it's the very powerful Warhol Foundation versus Lynn Goldsmith. In 1981, I made a studio portrait of Prince. The photo is black and white. It's Prince from the waist up, white shirt, suspenders. He looks sort of vulnerable with this really direct stare into the camera. And at the time, it's still early on in Prince's career, so he's this up-and-coming artist. Then, a few years later... Prince is an icon at the top of the charts. Vanity Fair wants to feature him in the magazine, and they hire Andy Warhol to do a portrait of Prince. Now I do some, you know, uh, portraits of people. And Warhol takes Goldsmith's vulnerable black-and-white photograph, and he makes Prince's gaze look stronger, almost unshakable. And he makes Prince purple, he disembodies his head, changes a few things here and there, and Vanity Fair runs it. They credit Goldsmith for the use of the photo, and they pay her $400. So far, everything's fine, right? Everyone's been paid, everything's fine. (laughs) Yeah, everything's fine. Um, Everything's fine for quite a while, until 2016. There is breaking news from Minnesota. The singer, songwriter, and musician known as Prince has died. There's all these outpourings of remembrances. A great musician, a great producer, great songwriter. Possibly the most talented, charismatic, entertaining, influential. Lynn Goldsmith is seeing all this coverage, just like anybody else. And she comes across the cover of a magazine about Prince. And I look at it and I think, that's really familiar looking. And I, uh, I looked in my files, because I, I never forget someone's eyes. It's another Warhol silkscreen. This one is orange, but she can tell it's still her photograph of Prince. So she sees this and starts to say, uh, wh- what, what, what is that? <laughs> I never saw that before. By this point, Andy Warhol had passed away. So I called up the Warhol Foundation, and I said, you know, I've discovered this. Here's the original invoice. Here's the original picture, and I'd like to talk to you about it. One thing leads to another. We'll hear argument first this morning in case number 21-869, Andy Warhol Foundation. And it ends up at the Supreme Court. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court... The Warhol lawyer goes first. The stakes for artistic expression in this case are high. A ruling for Goldsmith would strip protection not just from the Prince series, but from countless works of modern and contemporary art. He says the court should be doing the same thing they did in the Two Life Crew case. If you look at Judge Laval's article at page 1111... And he says, Warhol? Transformation? He passed that test. He transformed Prince into an icon. Uh, A a picture of Prince that shows him as the exemplar of sort of the dehumanizing effects of celebrity culture in America. But the justices push back on this whole idea. Uh, Is that enough of a transformation? Under Laval's test, how can judges tell if the meaning or message has been transformed enough? 
How can a court even tell what the meaning or message of a piece of art is? Uh, should it receive testimony by the photographer and the artist? Do you call art critics as experts? How does the court go about doing this? Justice Alito suggests the court can't really do the work of art critics. And then you hear Chief Justice Roberts start to do what the Supreme Court does in almost every case. Let's suppose that you put a little smile on his face and say this is a new message. The message is Prince can be happy, Prince should be happy. He begins to throw out hypotheticals. And they use these hypotheticals to stress test the transformative standard. Laval's bridge. Supposing that we subject this bridge to predictable serious stresses, stresses of tornado force winds, trains loaded with heavy cargo, collision happening on the bridge, and uh, use our mathematical tests and whatever else they are to see whether is it going to hold up under those circumstances. If you didn't know this is what the justices do... Uh, Let's say somebody uh, uses a different color. It might sound like they're just going off the rails. Here's Clarence Thomas. Let's say that um, I'm both a Prince fan, which I was in the 80s, and... um, No longer. (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) So... uh, Only on Thursday night. (laughs) But uh, let's say that I'm also a Syracuse fan. And he's like, what if I make a giant orange prince head poster for a Syracuse game? And I'm waving it during the game with a big prince face on it. Go orange. Go orange. Is that transformative? If a work is derivative. Then Amy Coney Barrett brings up Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, you know, book to movie. Uh... I, I don't think that Lord of the Rings has a fundamentally different meaning or message, but I would have the to probably... Seems like she's a fan. But I would probably have to learn more and read the books and see the movies to give you a definitive <laughs> judgment on that. And I recognize reasonable people could probably disagree on that. Um, I it goes on like that for a while, until... Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Ms. Blatt. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Goldsmith's lawyer gets up to speak. If petitioner's test prevails... Copyrights will be at the mercy of copycats. And she argues the whole new meaning and message part of the transformative test is kind of bullshit. Anyone could turn Darth Vader into a hero or spin off all in the family into the Jeffersons without paying the creators a dime. She's like, if anyone can take something and make a tiny little change and call it theirs, then basically there's no copyright protection for anything. Your test lies madness in the way of almost every photograph to a silkscreen or a lithograph or any editing. I guarantee the airbrush pictures of me look better than the real pictures of me, and they have a very different meaning and message to me. John Roberts is like, isn't Warhol doing something bigger? It's not just that Warhol has a different style. It's a different purpose. One is the commentary on modern society. The other is to show what Prince looks like. Yes, I think but that, right. Goldsmith's lawyer is like, you're missing the point. So where I think all this goes wrong is you're just focusing on meaning and message independent of the underlying use. In other words, this isn't about aesthetics. 
This is about money and the market. Even Warhol followed the rules. When he did not take a picture himself, he paid the photographer. His foundation just failed to do so here. If you could just summarize briefly, because this was a big case, a David versus Goliath case. Yeah. This is a huge, huge copyright case that will happen. After the decision now, came out, Lynn Goldsmith went on the radio to talk right. about it. Yes. I, the reason I risked everything I have was I wanted to make sure, as best I could, that the copyright law would be one to protect all artists. The court rules seven to two in Goldsmith's favor. But what's funny about it is they did it in kind of a very Warhol way. Well, I don't know. I never call my stuff art. See, it's just work. Warhol's whole artistic project is arguably a commentary on American consumerism. The way everything is a commodity. Campbell's soup cans, Marilyn Monroe, Prince, even Warhol's own art. And the irony is, the justices kind of agree with him here. They treat his work like a commodity and reason that the Goldsmith photograph and the Warhol silkscreen are both licensed to magazines to go with articles about prints. So they're serving the same purpose in the same market. And that means no transformation. The Warhol Foundation was wrong. So what about the question we started with? Like in making the photo orange and bold, did Warhol transform the meaning of the photograph, like aesthetically? Right. So the court kind of put that aside. They're like, we're not art critics. We're not hearing from art critics. We don't want to focus on the meaning or message of a thing so much. We want to focus on how it's being used. So... In this way, they transformed their own transformative test. And the reason why this technicality is interesting to me is the Supreme Court had created standards for itself, a sturdy bridge, and then it just kind of changed the rules. And they're changing the rules based on their own understandings of the law and their own preferences, their own biases, their own interests. So... If art is in the eye of the beholder, isn't the law too? No, 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 no. Judge Laval. It is definitely not in the eyes of the beholder. The beholder doesn't get to decide what the law is. And the fact that uh, different people can believe that different cases should come out different ways doesn't mean that, that there's no law and that everybody is just uh, whatever anyone may think is what the law is. That's not what the law is. Is what the law is. That's not what the law is. Is what the law is. That's not what the law is. Is what the law is. That's not what the law is. Is what the law is. That's not what the law is. To me, it's not a legal issue. It's a taste issue. We went to art critic Jerry Saltz after the decision came down. He's all for artists getting paid, but he didn't like the decision. The Andy Warhol case, for me, curtails art in an extremely dramatic way. That is basically what the dissent says, too. Justice Elena Kagan writes 
it will stifle creativity of every sort. Artists will hesitate to remix things, to get inspired. They won't make new art. She thinks the decision will undermine the very thing the law was meant to do, advance the arts. And then Kagan goes after the majority. She's essentially accusing the majority of being Philistines who don't understand high art. This is one of our legal advisors, Jeannie Sookgerson. And she even says things like, um, this is Art History 101, that they need to go back to school. And in response, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, writing for the majority, hits right back. Sotomayor includes multiple footnotes. Long footnotes devoted to dissing the dissent. She says, the dissent is a series of misstatements and exaggerations from the dissentant's very first sentence to its very last. Um, that's not normal. And some commentators have said now at least we don't all have to pretend that everyone loves each other. But I don't know. Jeannie says, compared to the past, this is a big shift in the court. The idea that even if you disagree with the other side, you go to the mats on the substance. You don't go to the mats by engaging in personal attacks. I think that that era is drawing to a close. And we're seeing it very publicly in a Supreme Court opinion. In the Warhol case, the passionate, personal disagreement that two Supreme Court justices are having out in the open is kind of wild. It kind of reminds you of two people disagreeing over whether a movie is any good or loving the song of the summer that someone else can't stand. Even though the judges say the law is nothing like art, think about the way art criticism often sounds. The late capitalist, post-structuralist, post-Marxian dialectic of the haptic... They both have their jargon. Factor three, which has to do with the amount and substantiality of the portion you... Can you tell me, like, what do you think makes a good art critic? Somebody that's willing to stay completely open. You don't decide beforehand what you're going to like. You don't say things like, I don't like painting. Because, of course, you're going to see a painting eventually that you are probably going to like. They're both supposed to stay open, unbiased. So the best art criticism is democratic. It's a conversation. The best is everybody talking. Everybody's putting in, everybody voting, everybody trying to convince the other and allowing as many stories as possible. What do justices do when they try and interpret the law? The first time I ever stepped into the Supreme Court, it kind of felt like church. Like the justices were these servants, trying their best to answer to a higher power of sorts. Maybe that's a little bit self-serious, but at least it seemed to me like they were reverent in front of the incredible stakes, the lives of the people in their hands. 
if the law is not like church? Is it math? Like engineering a bridge, making sturdy, objective legal standards. Or maybe it is like an art form. Impressionistic, ever-changing, imperfect. In other words, you have no vision of the past, no vision of the future trend. You're just doing whatever you feel like. Well, yeah. And that's it for this season of More Perfect. We're coming back with new episodes later this year. So if you have questions about the Supreme Court, about the law in general, we want to hear from you. Go to moreperfectpodcast.org and send us a voice memo. More Perfect is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Whitney Jones and Alyssa Eads with help from Gabrielle Burbet. It was edited by Julia Longoria and me, Jenny Lawton. Fact check by Naomi Sharp. Special thanks to Sam Moyne, Jeff Guo, Andy Lancet, Amy Adler, Allison Orr-Larsen, David Posen, Jane Ginsburg, and Hank Willis-Thomas. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Botin, Emily Siner, Salmana Hakan, and Emily Madre. The show is sound designed by David Herman and mixed by Joe Plord. Our theme is by Alex Overington, and the episode art is by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, we've got loads. Subscribe to More Perfect and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court Audio is from Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Support for More Perfect is provided by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. This is the last episode of the season, and there are so many people who made it possible. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts to Miriam Barnard, Mike Berry, Aaron Cohen, Jason Isaac, John Passmore, Theodora Kuslin, Kim Nowacki, Andrea Latimer, Robin Billenkoff, Rex Doan, Jacqueline Sankata, Jennifer Houlihan Roussel, Dahlia Dagger, Michelle Shu, Ivan Zimmerman, Lauren Cooperman, Kareem Lawrence, Rachel Lieberman, Maya Pasini Schnau, Vanessa Servini, Tara Sonin, Dan Fischette, Caitlin Quigley, Anne O'Malley, Liz Weber, Melissa Frank, Kenya Young, and Andrew Golis. And thank you for listening. <laughs>